This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. On Nothing and Kindred Subjects by Hilaire Belloc Section 15 On a Rich Man Who Suffered One cannot do a greater service now when a dangerous confusion of thought threatens us with an estrangement of classes than to distinguish in all we write between capitalism the result of a blind economic development and the persons and motives of those who happen to possess the bulk of the means of production capitalism may or may not have been a source of evil to modern communities it may have been a necessary and even a beneficent phase in that struggle upward from the brute which marks our progress from gospel times until the present day but whether it has been a good or a bad phase in economic evolution it is not scientific and it is not english to confuse the system with the living human beings attached to it and to contrast rich and poor insisting on the supposed luxury and callousness of the one and the humiliations and sufferings of the other to expose the folly nay the wickedness of that attitude i have but to take some very real and very human case of a rich man a very rich man who suffered and suffered deeply merely as a man one whose suffering wealth did not and could not alleviate one very striking example of this human bond i am able to lay before you because the gentleman in question has with fine human sympathy permitted his story to be quoted the only stipulation he made with me was first i should conceal real names and secondly and that i should write the whole in as journalistic and popular method as possible so that his very legitimate grievance in the matter i am about to describe should be as widely known as possible and also in order to spread as widely as possible the lesson it contains that the rich also are men to change all names etc a purely mechanical task i easily achieved whether i have been equally successful in my second object of catching the breezy and happy style of true journalism it is for my readers to judge i can only assure them that my intentions are pure i have promised my friend to set down the whole matter as it occurred the press he said to me is the only vehicle left by which one can bring pressure to bear upon public opinion i hope you can do something for me you write i believe he added for the papers i said i did well he answered you fellows that write for the newspapers have a great advantage at this he sighed deeply and asked me to come and have lunch with him at his club which is called the ragamuffins for fun and it is full of jolly fellows there i ate boiled mutton and greens washed down with an excellent glass or maybe a glass and a half of belgian wine a wine called chateau ballard i noticed in the room mr Cantor, mr charles sir john ebbsmith mr may mr fix joe hesketh matthew furcombe lord boxgrove old tommy lawson bill mr compton mr annally jeremy the trainer mr mannering his son mr william mannering and his nephew mr kite mannering lord nor pillsbury little jack bowden baxter horrible baxter 
Baney, Mr. Claversgill, the solemn old Duke of Bascourt, a Dane, Ephraim T. Sieber, Algernon Gutt, Feverthorpe, whom that old wit Cor used to call a Featherthorpe, and many others with whose names I will not weary the reader, for he would think me too reminiscent and digressive were I to add to the list Cocky Billings, Fat Harry, Mr. Munzer, Mr. Eartham, dear courteous old-world Squire Howell, and that prime favourite, Lord Man, Sambo Corthrop, Ring the Coffee Cooler, and Harry Sark, with all the Forfarshire lot, also fell under my eye, as did Maxwell, Mr. Gam. However, such an introduction may prove overlong for the complaint I have to publish. I have said enough to show the position my friend holds. Many of my readers, on reading this list, will guess at once the true name of the club, and may also come near that of my distinguished friend, but I am bound in honour to disguise it under the veil of a pseudonym or nom de guerre. I will call him Mr. Quail. Mr. Quail then was off to shoot grouse on a moor he had taken in Mole for the season. The house and estate are well known to all of us. I will disguise the moor under the pseudonym or nom de guerre of Othello. He was awaited at Othello on the evening of the 11th, for on the one hand there is an act most strictly observed that not a grouse may be shot until the dawn of August 12th, and on the other a day passed at Othello with any other occupation but that of shooting would be hell. Mr. Quayle therefore proposed to travel to Othello by way of Glasgow, taking the 947 at St. Pancras on the evening of the 10th, last Monday and engaging a bed on that train. It is essential, if a full Christian and sane view is to be had of this relation, that the reader should note the following details. Mr. Quayle had engaged the bed. He had sent his check for it a week before, and held the receipt signed by T. McGregor, superintendent. True, there was a notice printed, very small, on the back of the receipt, saying the company would not be responsible in any case of disappointment overcrowding, accident, delay, robbery, murder, or act of God. But my friend Mr. Quayle very properly paid no attention to that rubbish, knowing well enough, he is a J.P., that a man cannot sign himself out of his common law rights. In order to leave ample time for the train, my friend Mr. Quayle ordered dinner at eight. A light meal for his wife had gone to the Engendine some weeks before. At nine precisely he was in his carriage with his coachman on the box to drive his horses, his man Mole also, and Piggy the little dog in with him. He knows it was nine because he asked the butler what time it was as he left the dining-room, and the butler answered five minutes to nine, my lord. Moreover, the clock in the dining-room, the one on the stairs, and his own watch all corroborated the butler's statement. He arrived at St. Pancras. If, as he sarcastically wrote to the company, your own clocks are to be trusted, at 9.21. So far, so good. He had twenty-six minutes to spare. On his carriage, driving up to the station, he was annoyed to discover an enormous seething mob, through which it was impossible to penetrate, swirling round the booking office, and behaving with a total lack of discipline, which made the confusion ten thousand times worse than it need have been. I wish, said Mr. Quayle to me later with some heat, I wish I could have put some of those great hulking brutes into the ranks for a few months. 
Believe me, conscription would work wonders. Mr. Quayle himself holds a commission in the yeomanry, and knows what he is talking about. That is neither here nor there. I only mention it to show what an effect this anarchic mob produced upon a man of Mr. Quayle's trained experience. His man Mole had purchased the tickets in the course of the day. Unfortunately, on being asked for them, he confessed, in some confusion, to having mislaid them. Mr. Quayle was too well-bred to make a scene. He quietly dispatched his man Mole to the booking office with orders to get new tickets while he waited for him at an appointed place near the door. He had not been there five minutes. He had barely seen his man struggle through the press towards the booking office when a hand was laid upon his shoulder, and a policeman told him in an insolent and surly tone to move out of it. Mr. Quayle remonstrated, and the policeman, who I am assured was only a railway servant in disguise, bodily and physically forced him from the doorway. To this piece of brutality Mr. Quayle ascribes all his subsequent misfortunes. Mr. Quayle was on the point of giving his card when he found himself caught in an eddy of common people who bore him off his feet, nor did he regain them in spite of his struggles until he was tightly wedged against the wall of the further end of the room. Mr. Quayle glanced at his watch and found it to be twenty minutes to ten. There were but seven minutes left before his train would start, and his appointment with his man Mole was hopelessly missed unless he took the most immediate steps to recover it. Mr. Quayle is a man of resource. He has served in South Africa, and is a director of several companies. He noticed that porters, pushing heavy trolleys and crying, By your leave, had some chance of forging through the brawling welter of people. He hailed one such, and stretching as best he could from his wretched fix, begged him to reach the door and tell his man Mole where he was. At the same time, as the occasion was most urgent, for it was now 9.44, he held out a half-sovereign. The porter took it respectfully enough, but to Mr. Quayle's horror the menial had no sooner grasped the coin than he made off in the opposite direction, pushing his trolley indolently before him and crying, by your leave, in a tone that mingled insolence with court's exultation. Mr. Quayle, now desperate, fought and struggled to be free. There were but two minutes left, and he so far succeeded as to break through the human barrier immediately in front of him. It may be he used some necessary violence in this attempt. At any rate, a woman of the most offensive appearance raised piercing shrieks and swore that she was being murdered. The policeman, to whom I have before alluded, came jostling through the throng, seized Mr. Quayle by the collar, and crying, What, again? treated him in a manner which, in the opinion of Mr. Quayle's solicitor, would, had Mr. Quayle retained his number, have warranted a criminal prosecution. Meanwhile Mr. Quayle's man Mole was anxiously looking for him, first at the refreshment bar and later at the train itself. Here he was startled to hear the guard say, Going! And before he could reply he was, according to his own statement, thrust into the train, which immediately departed and did not stop until Peterborough. There the faithful fellow assures us he alit, returning home in the early hours of the morning. Mr. Quayle himself was released with a torn coat and collar, his eyeglasses smashed, his watch-chain broken, and smarting under a warning from the policeman not to be caught doing it again. 
He went home in a cab to find every single servant out of the house, junketing at some music hall or other, and several bottles of wine with a dozen glasses standing ready for them against their return on his own study table. The unhappy story need not be pursued. Like every misfortune, it bred a crop of others, some so grievous that none would expose them to the public eye, and one consequence, remote indeed, but clearly traceable to that evening, nearly dissolved the union of seventeen years. I do not believe that any one of those who are forever presenting to us the miseries of the lower classes would have met a disaster of this sort with the dignity and manliness of my friend, and I am further confident that the recital of his sufferings here given will not have been useless in the great debate now engaged as to the function of wealth in our community. The end of section 15